and welcome to Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. I'm Jim Sparrow. On today's podcast, we're discussing Fort Wayne Ballet's upcoming production, Tchaikovsky Enchanted, March 26th through 28th at the Arch United Center. Our guests today are Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown and Fort Wayne Philharmonic Associate Conductor Caleb Young. Karen and Caleb, it's great to have you both. Thanks for having us. Jim, thanks for having me. So we're still working through challenges. We're in the midst of the pandemic. Hopefully, we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel. But there are a lot of things we can and can't do. Usually, this time of year, we have a full production with the orchestra, and we were planning to do Sleeping Beauty. A lot of those things are not possible. We're not able to have the orchestra this year. We're also not able to do the full production. But we're still working hard to try to present some live performances. One of those is uh, coming up with this Tchaikovsky Enchanted. So Karen, talk a little bit about this concept. What are people going to see? Well, I'd like to back up just a bit, if I may, and explain why we can't do the full length. That We love working with the orchestra, and Sleeping Beauty is one of those grand ballets that really fares best when you can feel the music within you while the dancers are performing. The other thing is with the COVID restrictions, number of people in the audience, number of cast members that we can even have on stage, etc., that's prevented us from being able to do the full length. We also need to keep our programming within an hour, or shortly a little more than an hour, So we've had to narrow down the scope of what we had intended to do this spring with the orchestra, and we'll be doing selections of three of the most famous ballets in the whole world, and they all happen to be composed by Tchaikovsky. So when you talk about Tchaikovsky, and Caleb, please chime in, these are (laughs) iconic ballets. Why are they so iconic? I mean, the story is it the music is both, and how do those things work together? Well, let me just say by... First off, the music of these three ballets are about as good as it gets in the symphonic large-scale repertoire. I mean, it's amazing we can fit these orchestras in the pit during normal times. During COVID, that's obviously not an option. But I I live with this music every year, especially Nutcracker, and it just energizes me as a conductor. And we forget, I think especially so in Nutcracker, in the second act, these tunes are so famous that we sometimes forget that someone composed them. I mean, the pas de deux is literally a G major scale. And it's so simple in a way, but it's crafted so beautifully. And as far as the dancing is concerned, you know, when it comes to Tchaikovsky, the music is very powerful by itself, obviously. And I think the music can stand by itself on a symphonic stage. Obviously, Tchaikovsky took these three ballets and created sweet excerpts from them because they're so long. And so he took tracks from... I'm using air quotes, you can't see because using a podcast, but the most important music in the ballet and created suites for them. But honestly, every note of these three ballets, especially Tchaikovsky, is just gem. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful music, and I, I never tire of conducting it. But let me just say one more thing about that. There are ballets where the music is not as strong without the dancing. You know, I hate to name certain ballets, but maybe something like Coppelia, something like that. Uh, maybe some Stravinsky ballets. But these Tchaikovsky ballets, these trio of pieces are just so strong together. And it's some of Tchaikovsky's best writing, if not maybe his finest writing, especially with Nutcracker. So talking about the ballet portion in terms of how they stack up in the repertoire and what makes them special, how do you see them, Karen? Well, I think in this particular time period, there was a very famous choreographer who was a Frenchman who actually choreographed for the Russian ballet or ran the Russian ballet from the dance perspective. And he had these pieces written specifically with the choreography in mind, where nowadays you generally hear a piece that you love and you choreograph the dance to the music. In this day and time, the music was written specifically with pedipause intent in mind. 
I think the other part about Petipah ballets is he choreographed 62 ballets in his lifetime. And what's amazing about them is, by dictation from the Tsar of Russia, he was required to put something new in every single ballet, something that had not yet been seen. So each of these ballets represents something brand new for the world of dance to see. For instance, in Sleeping Beauty, there were real water fountains on stage in the original production, which, of course, with the requirements of production nowadays, that's very difficult to recreate. Swan Lake has those iconic arms, the porte bras that the swans use when they dance. And then Nutcracker was the first ballet where children were used to do the lead parts. So talk a little bit about more about maybe the interaction between, I mean, you've mentioned Tchaikovsky, you've talked about these first elements in, in ballet. And to your point, you know, when I think of certain theatrical scores, ballet specifically, there are some that once you've heard them and seen the movement with them, they so intermingle that you can't help but see it. I think of after you listen to Petrushka all the way through and you see the movement, it's lined up so you can see the entire ballet in your head. Everything is so lined up in terms of the way it's choreographed, not so much with like a Minkus ballet, hmm. where it's a slightly different approach. But you alluded to that. So talk a little bit more about Petapa. You talked about the involvement. Talk a little more about how this really came to be in terms of of this interaction, this is a big change in terms of the way ballets are created. What's different about this? Well, I just want to speak, and maybe we can bounce ideas off each other about the difficulty of the choreography, you know, maybe something like Aurora. This music by Tchaikovsky is devilishly difficult, and I think it can be reflected in the choreography. We forget, you know, each year we play Nutcracker. We do maybe something like Sleeping Beauty or Swan Lake, but this music down in the pit is not to be underestimated. And there are orchestras that are not as familiar with this repertoire. Like take in Germany, for example, they perform Nutcracker in the summer mm -hmm. because they don't have it associated with the same storyline. And you see these famous orchestras doing interviews and saying, we underestimated this music. We don't play it every year. We're not a pit orchestra. And it's one thing to play the suite, like I had mentioned, where you're pulling excerpts from the second act and it's just a bunch of character dances. But when you play it cover to cover, it's not to be underestimated. I remember when I was in grad school, my conducting professor used to say, Caleb, you're not a real conductor until you've conducted Walls of the Snowflakes. Then you, <laughs> then you can be a real conductor. And I, I have to say, each year I conduct, you know, 40, 50 shows, and that five or six minutes worth of music is the most difficult conducting I do, hands down, all season. Wow, interesting. It, it takes every single ounce of my bandwidth to keep the ship on, or the train on the rails. <laughs> let alone, you know, conducting choirs in the balcony and trying to watch the dance. And so, yeah. I think from the dancer's perspective, I've been fortunate enough in my career to have danced all these ballets. And Sleeping Beauty is what we call the benchmark ballet. In other words, it has many children in the ballet, not necessarily as lead roles, of course, all the way up to the principal roles of the ballet, the prince and princess Aurora. And it is one of the most difficult ballets to perform at every level. Ironically, as we're in rehearsal, I'm talking about the difficulty of that with the dancers because it's very pure. If you don't have a clean and pure technique, it does not play. So nowadays, you tend to see lots of turns or high jumps or lots of gimmicks, so to speak. But in this ballet, the gimmicks don't work. It has mm. to be very pure and very clean and pristine, I guess. And then the artistry comes on top of that technique. Nutcracker is fun. We all see it. Interesting to hear it's so difficult to play. And when you said just the suite with just character dances, that in itself was quite a revelation in its day because Petipa traveled around the world at that point in time and brought these folk dances from other countries to present to Russia. And this is what we think 
as close as we know they looked like for the audiences. And then, of course, you have Swan Lake, which was first presented and was a miserable failure. Hmm. It was not successful at all, and they tucked it away and didn't do it for years and years until after, actually, Tchaikovsky had passed, and they planned a memorial service and revived Acts 2 and 4. And people went, what? Why have we hidden this ballet all these years? So they've each enjoyed a special life. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about how much secrecy and just mystique is around, even Nutcracker. I mean, Tchaikovsky, the famous story about him hearing the celeste at the, mm. at the World Fair in Paris and being so entranced by the instrument and having it shipped back home secretly. Because yes. no one wants to hear this beautiful instrument. And we take these, these revolutionary acts by Tchaikovsky for granted in a right. way. Right. Oh, it's Nutcracker season again. Let's play this music. But this music for me... Admittedly so. I, I really missed Nutcracker this year. I mean, this that was the thing that kind of tore my heart up the most, is not being in the pit. And let me ask you, Karen, do you find that dancers really enjoy these three ballets from a dancing standpoint? Because musicians love playing this music. Yes, I think they do. I think people hear, the dancers hear the first strains of the overture of Nutcracker and say, oh my gosh, again. <laughs> but the first year they never dance Nutcracker again, like when they retire, they realize how special it's been. The other ballets aren't presented as regularly, so they each bring different... Um, Swan Lake is a mammoth ballet oh, yeah. to put on stage, and the coaching that has to go into the very different movements, the very different arm movements, is quite a study into itself. But um, Sleeping Beauty is just this beautiful, lush, rich ballet that you can't help but get wrapped in the music, whether you're wrapped in the choreography or not. But it's a fun story. All people know it. It's nothing secret about it. So it's easy to understand. And when it's well done, it is spectacular. Well, let me ask you, how do you, and Jim, I, I hate I'm jumping in here so much, but because <laughs> uh, I'm just curious, um, how do you go from two and a half hours down to an hour? Because I listened to the full ballet the other day. Uh, I thought, man, I can't imagine cutting any of this music. It's right. all so amazing. So it what is. is that like? And even when we present the full length here, we cut it somewhat to fit it within the constraints mm -hmm. of what we need to present with the community as a collaboration with the orchestra. It is difficult, but when you remember, for instance, in Nutcracker, the snow potida, just before the snowflakes that you mentioned, that was originally written as a scene change. Oh, wow. It wasn't a potida at all. So the curtain closed and all the crash, bang, boom music you hear is covering up the noise of things moving backstage Brilliant. because they didn't have the same capabilities technologically that we have today. So a lot of the music written for Sleeping Beauty as well, we have that scene called the panorama mm. and it's the lilac fairy sailing with the prince taking him to the sleeping princess. But it's very difficult in smaller theaters to have the sailing boat, similar to what you'd see in Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult in many of theaters, especially with the stage space, you have to sacrifice. Do we keep the space to dance or do we use the space for the production elements that may or may not play and really doesn't further the story? So Interesting. we have a lot of that music that we've streamlined a bit for that. It just breaks my heart a little bit. Every time I go to a concert and I see these pieces presented on a symphonic series and they've trimmed it down to 45 mm -hmm. minutes, that just crushes my soul a bit because mm -hmm. it's just such good music. Well, nowadays, when you see Nutcracker, for instance, how can you not see the snow pot at all? Oh, Why God. was that written for a scene change? Absolutely. But they didn't have another way to do it. Mm -hmm. And for the stream of the story, they just kept the music playing, the curtain came down, and in that very big grand section in the end of the potida, Clara and the Nutcracker Prince simply walk across the stage in a spotlight 
And you'll find a few companies that still hmm. present it that way today. And the audience just goes crazy because the music is so grand and all they're doing is simple walks, but it's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Well, and I wonder too, when you talk about these suites, looking at it from a practical standpoint, how much of this is a composer's repackaging so they can make more money? Mm. Because while you're completely right, you can't put a two and a half hour performance on stage all the time. People get, but thinking practically, if I write this music, whether I'm Stravinsky or Tchaikovsky or whomever, if I repackage this in ways that orchestras would play it or would be able to do it in a way that I could say that it's slightly different, it gives me a, an interesting way to, to continue to make money off of my ideas. So I wonder, too, when we talked a little bit about the creation of the integration of the creation, we talk about the ballet russe ballets, which, you know, the artist and the choreographer and the musicians are all working together to put a product together. Is that how this one was put together? You talked about Petapa and Tchaikovsky. How did this one actually work? I'm not sure it was quite the same collaboration that we envisioned from the Diaghilev days. I, the story is that Petipa would work out the choreography on his dining room table with objects that he moved around to create the patterning. So in Waltz of the Flowers, of course, the real supporters of the ballet that loved it were the audiences that could sit in the back of the house. The royalty always came because they must and they appreciated it. But the real audience, you know, the fan club, so to speak, was in the back. And if you see Waltz of the Flowers from the top, it's swirling flowers, swirling mm. patterns like mm. flowers on a gentle breeze. And ours is actually that. You just don't get that from our specific theater. But I don't think it was the same kind of collaboration. The story is that Petipa would say, I need 64 counts of march music, and then I need a gong to hit here, and that's what's going to happen at the gong. And I don't think it was quite the... Yeah. You might have a different perspective, No, I, that's, that's my understanding of it as well. But Jim, I think you make a good point about composers needing to make a living. Their music, in a way, becomes functional when they do arrange it from these suites and they, they arrange it for forehand piano. I hate to change the composer uh, narrative here, but I've been kind of revisiting Appalachian Spring a lot these mm -hmm. days, and <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, it's a suite that everybody plays in the concert hall, but now we're having this kind of renaissance of the full ballet. And I, I just looked yesterday, actually, and the publisher who's raking in the cash for the Copeland Foundation and the Martha Gamm Fund is pushing the full ballet these days. So I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing a shift in these Tchaikovsky ballets. That I don't know. You know, they're, for us, they're public domain. Mm -hmm. The choreography, it's not protected by trusts, etc. in the same way that something more like Martha's Ballet or Appalachian Spring so I think it gives a different opening for many companies to do different things, but they're harder to do because of the grandiose nature of the piece. I think what's really fascinating is that these three ballets that we're presenting sections of were all choreographed within five years of each other. Wow. Can you imagine? Five years, he created all three of these big, and they're four-act ballets generally. Yeah, I'm, I'm always so blown away by your creative process. I, I come see your performances, and when you present new pieces, I'm like, man, I can't imagine setting this. This is such a different... Because I'm literally studying dusty music that was written 200 years ago. So not much. You know, there might be a little bit of interpretive mm -hmm. flair there, but you're literally creating new art, which mm -hmm. is so inspiring in a way. Thank you. I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but I think also in the Ballet Russe time period, or the Diaghilev time period, 
the ballets weren't four acts anymore. Right. They were more right. repertoire They're shows. Shorter, right. So instead of one night of a four-act ballet, I know Nutcrackers too, but yeah. four acts of Sleeping Beauty, you would go see three different ballets in one evening. So we're going to do Petrushka, Firebird, Rite of Spring, right? <laughs> Why not? You just talk to those trust folks about that, Let's all right? Let's do it. I'll make go. a phone call. <laughs> there you go. See how that works for us. All right. <laughs> So, but you you mentioned something interesting too. You know, the periods are different, the collaborations are different. But many people think of ballet as Russian. While I know it's French, mm. but it's Russian, and they have a heavy influence in ballet thriving at a period of time when you could argue without the Russian influence, ballet would have trickled away. So, why? I mean, when we think about Tchaikovsky, yes, he's known for many other pieces. His symphonies are especially the latter three. Many people know them. But this music is something that is very recognizable. Mm. Same with the ballets. If you know nothing else, you've gone to Nutcracker and maybe you think you've seen Swan Lake. Why? Why is it the Russian period? What was special about that? Oh, that's pretty loaded. There are so many things that made it special. I think from the dance perspective, you have all the French folks who, that's our mothership. The Paris Opera Ballet is our mothership. So all of the people that went to really promote ballet in Russia were actually French. And Sleeping Beauty, if you dig a little deeper, is a tribute by Petipa to King Louis XIV. Hmm. But this is how he presented it. So he sort of slid in under in the Russian government with this presentation. It wasn't until after Petipa left the Russian ballet in 1902 that they had a Russian director for the first time ever for the Russian ballet. So while that was a convoluted way to answer, I think that the czar was very intent on making his country the very best at everything, including dance. And he brought the best people in at the time and poured a lot of financial support behind this. Oh, you want to create three big ballets in five years and you have an unlimited budget? Here, go. And you want the best composer that our country has to offer? Here, we'll get you Tchaikovsky. I can't imagine he appreciated being told. No, but <laughs> I, I think you make a very good point about this elitism in culture that was being perpetuated in Russia. And honestly, that's being perpetuated today. I was speaking to someone in Chicago a few years ago who deals very fine instruments. We're talking seven-figure violins all around the world. And he got a call literally from Marinsky Theater and said, hey, we have a blank check. How many Stradivarius do you have in the shop? We'll take them all. And of course, you know, that's what the Russian government wanted. They wanted to have the finest instruments sitting in the pit playing for the finest dancers perhaps in the world. And he said to me, I was very conflicted by this because I'll never see these instruments again but at least they are going to serve a great purpose. I think you make a, a strong point, Tchaikovsky. These tunes are so beautiful and really the epitome of romantic music that it just perpetuated the art form to the next level. And I'm always amazed how late Nutcracker came to the United States. <laughs> it's mind-blowing, actually, but now I can't imagine it not being a part of our life. About 1950, just yeah. by the way. In California or some, somewhere out in the West Coast, right? San Francisco yeah. Ballet did the first presentation of I Nutcracker. I can't believe that every time I hear that. so And it's so ingrained into our, our culture now. Well, and I think to the popularity of the ballets, you walk away humming something mm. from each of these ballets. Absolutely. Take Walt Disney. He took Sleeping Beauty, made the Sleeping Beauty movie into the animated version, and all of the music in the animated version is actually from the ballet doesn't fit necessarily in the right place with the storyline as the way it was written, but it's all in there. So you hear this in every walk of life. In the grocery store, you hear Nutcracker at Christmas time. Absolutely, yep. There's something in there for everybody. I'm seeing it year-round. It's like a ghost that follows me around. Nutcracker? <laughs> yes. 
Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's it's a good thing. I actually have like a rule that I normally don't allow that word to be spoken because it triggers me in the best of ways. But I love Nutcracker. I understand that it's a holiday ballet here in our country, and you're right. If you were anywhere else, you might see it in the mm, middle of July. July. It has nothing yeah. to do with our holiday season. It just happens to have a holiday set to it, the Christmas tree that grows, the toys that are given to the children but it could be done any time of the year. The other two ballets are any time of the year everywhere. Mm-hmm. So let's pivot just a little bit about our conversation and talk a little bit about the actual application when you're going through a theater week. As you earlier mentioned in the conversation, it's very different to have live production with all the elements, mm-hmm. the live orchestra, sets dropping and various things happening, all the animation that happens in a real theater performance. So what is it like to be in the pit in terms of working with live dancers and live pieces and the same with the dancers working with live? Because things happen, both good and bad. Mm. But there's also that ability to make certain things very special because it never happens the same way again. Mm. And when it's really lined up, it actually works the way I think it was originally intended to. It's very difficult to not to hear that point. But Maybe talk a little bit about that experience and maybe what goes into a week of preparation that's different than being on the stage when you're doing Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony as opposed to being in the pit when you're doing The Nutcracker or Swan Lake. Well, I think I should admittedly say that Nutcracker happens very fast for us. We typically have, and I know that this is crazy to hear from the dancing side of things because you spend months on this ballet, we have one rehearsal with just the orchestra. And then we typically have one dress with the company and then the next day we're in shows. Uh, Something like Sleeping Beauty would be a full week of rehearsals for us because the music is so hard and the orchestra doesn't know it as well. But when we kind of descend down into the pit, literally, it really feels there's a different energy there for us. We feel like we're we're going to war, but in a good way, like an artistic war, right? Uh, we're all on the same side, and it's so invigorating for me as as leading the orchestra. I'm thriving off of the orchestra's energy and the dancers' energy and the audiences. I mean, they're literally right behind my head in this hall. So it's it's a different it's a different vibe in a way. And the responsibility, I try not to think about it. But you know, during a pops concert or Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony at the Embassy, say I have a bad night or I make a mistake, it might not derail the whole thing. But I have potential down in the pit to really derail this whole thing. Um, I mean, Jillian, you can't see because we're doing a podcast, but she's sitting on my right shoulder. I remember I was conducting something a few years ago. And Marzipan, exactly. See, everyone knows this Marzipan story. (laughs) And I might have started a little too slow. And I knew it right from the moment of her eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Before we all were wearing masks. But yeah, I, I think about that all the time, honestly. And there's usually a dancer who reminds me of that story. But um, <laughs> it's a big responsibility. And I try to come to as many rehearsals beforehand with Miss Karen and, and talk about transitions and when to start things. It gets tricky. You should see my score. I have post-it notes all over my score. Okay, Saturday night, stage left. Wait for left arm to extend. Go. And then the next cast, it's stage left, uh, downstage. <laughs> so it's a challenge for me that I really enjoy, but it's a hell of a lot of responsibility. Well, and that, those post-it notes change because the dancers change exactly. when we have different casts. It's not that we change the choreography. <laughs> Each dancer has rehearsed something a little different. But those are only the principal dancers that might give you more color on your score page. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, the first act just goes. We just go from beginning to end of that act. But then the second act, that's where the fun starts. And I have to really pardon the, the terminology, but be on my toes <laughs> down there in the pit. 
Yeah, I think for a dancer, we walk into the theater and see the instruments in the pit, you know, the pit stage level when we first get there to warm up for the day or the evening, and all the instruments and chairs are on the stage. And that's when it becomes really real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when you can hear the orchestra tuning, whether you're backstage waiting in a place or whether you're in the dressing room, it's an extra little excitement that bubbles up in in your inside and just like in your gut and comes up through your heart. It's amazing. There's really nothing quite like it that we do all year long than collaborating with you all. I agree. Next year, fingers crossed, let's (laughs) make it happen. (laughs) It will. Yeah. It will. We're sure of it. We're very hopeful. And as you said, I think we're all looking forward to not only having people back in the theater, but being back with the orchestra and having Mm -hmm. things the way they're supposed to be. And I don't mean just in terms of people, but being able to produce and do things the way that they were intended, because that's really special. I think... It's also something to note that we're one of the few companies in the country now that are still performing. That's number one. But the second part is, even in a regular non-COVID year, we're one of the few companies in the country that works somewhat regularly with a live, Mm -hmm. live as opposed to recorded music with a live music. And that's really special as well. Our community is so lucky and we're so fortunate that they support that. I have so many colleagues that I tell them, oh, you know, I'm doing Nutcracker this year. And then, you know, I'll be doing Midsummer or uh, Sleeping <laughs> Beauty. Yeah, right. That was COVID. Yeah, yeah that was COVID. <laughs> and they, they're salivating because they want to have that opportunity and they don't get to conduct Nutcracker. And I'm so fortunate to do that. And sometimes another full production in the spring. But it's a rare treat in today's art scene, I think. Agreed. And people may ask why. There are a couple of things. It requires a lot of energy and effort outside of your own organization's mission to make that work. And the other thing is the costs of those collaborations are not small. Mm -hmm. So to bring all of that together is really something we've been fortunate to be able to do. Well, we're going to put a performance on this year and hope for a full performance in the years to come. And I'd like to thank you both for being here to talk a little bit about our upcoming performance and to share a little bit about Tchaikovsky. So thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Karen. Tchaikovsky Enchanted opens March 26th for four performances at the Arch United Center. You can purchase tickets by visiting the Fort Wayne Ballet website, artsticks.org, or calling the box office, 422-4226. That's our show, brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shaw Productions. Our guests were Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown and Fort Wayne Philharmonic Associate Conductor Caleb Young. Our co-producers are Jillian Sheppis-Lee and John Dawkins, I'd also like to thank John for his original music, which starts and ends the show. If you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout.